The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 38 and in our study this afternoon of the tabernacle, we're, we're going to begin our look at the structure. Uh, we have reviewed the purpose of the tabernacle. It was a place that God would dwell with his people. And we have discussed the stewardship of the people as they were responsible to supply the materials for the building. And then we talked about the workmen, uh, especially two workmen, Betzaleel and Aholiab, who oversaw the work of the tabernacle, and they were gifted by the Spirit to fashion the raw materials that were brought into articles of beauty that would glorify God. And each of these lessons show us that there, there's a New Testament application of Old Testament types as they look forward to the coming of Christ. And once again, uh, I repeat the significance of this study that we see the work of Christ through these Old Testament types, and these are critical for our understanding of, of a certain New Testament text. For example, uh, the Gospel of John comes alive when you understand the thought in the Jewish mind when they heard these words, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And as they would listen to that, they, they would get the sense uh, the text would take them to the Old Testament. They'd understand the sense of that. Then they would recognize that the Greek word used there, skenoo, for, for dwelt, means to encamp. It means to tent. And that is the same as tabernacled. So John would say in that text that as God came to dwell with his people in the tabernacle, so God came in the flesh to dwell with his people. Uh, 1,500 years before the Son of God became incarnate, God showed Israel through the tabernacle that he would come to live among men. And we couldn't have a personal relationship with God without the incarnation because God is a spirit. It's impossible for, for us to relate to a spirit. But when God became man, when he became flesh, then reconciliation and relationship with God was possible. Now this afternoon, I want to show you the first site that is seen as a person would approach the tabernacle. Now the first that you would see is not the tent, but you would see the boundary of it. And I have a very simple message for you tonight, easy for you to understand, and this is what we're going to discuss on the outside looking in. So if you'll turn there to Exodus 38, we're going to begin reading at verse number 9. And we'll see what God instructed Moses to do. As we read this, it might not make a great deal of sense to you until we have time to make explanation. So in verse number 9, Exodus 38. And he made the court on the south side southward. The hangings of the court were of fine twine linen and hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty and their brazen sockets twenty. The hooks and the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side, the hangings were a hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their sockets of brass twenty, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their pillars ten, and their sockets ten, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the east side eastward fifty cubits, 
The hangings of the one side of the gate were 15 cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the other side of the court of the gate, on this hand and on that hand, were hangings of 15 cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. All the hangings of the court round about were of fine twine linen. And the sockets for the pillars were of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver, and the overlaying of their chapters of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted with silver. And the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, and twenty cubits was the length and height and the breadth was five cubits, answerable to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four, and their sockets of brass four. The hooks of silver and the overlaying of their chapters and their fillets of silver and all the pins of the tabernacle of the court round about were of brass. Anyone want to take an opportunity to explain all of that? Not too easy, is it? Well, when studying the tabernacle, just about everybody has a different approach. How, how should we break this down? How, how should we go through it? And if you consider a verse by verse, by just looking at the scriptures in Exodus, you would find that the command to build the tabernacle and the offerings of the people and the workmen, those are first. And that, that's the order that we've followed thus far. Then next in the text, as you read, is the structure. You'll notice that going back uh, before the chapters that we've just read. It's the structure and the inside furnishings, followed by the brazen altar and the labor that was on the outside. Now, this afternoon, we're going to depart from that order, and we're going to begin a walkthrough of the tabernacle in the order that you would see it as you approached. Seems reasonable that we would start on the outside and then work our way in. And so if you were to stand at an elevated place away from the camp, if you could get above it and you could look down on the camp, you would see the 12 tribes of Israel uh, encamped around the tabernacle in the center, all of the tents surrounding this one central area. So we're going to start right there with the aerial view that the first that you would see is the location. Where is the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle is in the center of the camp. Now, the first picture that we have for you here is the aerial view. And you'll notice there the, the many tents of Israel with their standards. I hope you understand what I mean by the standard. That would be the flag that you see there. Uh, the name of the, of the tribe of, uh, that's uh, stationed there. And so you would see those standards of the tribes and they would be encamped around the tabernacle with the enclosure at the center. Now when Israel stopped in their journeys through the wilderness, they would... They would, they would set up the tabernacle area and each tribe would encamp in a specific location on each side of the tabernacle. There are three tribes that are on the east, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the north, and then three tribes on the south. And each of these tribes had their designated place and every time that they set up camp, they were to be in that proper location. Now in Numbers chapter 2, the location of the tribes is given. And then God spoke to Moses and he said, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house, far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. Now that's, that's interesting. If you can go back to the picture there just for a minute, uh, that our picture is not exactly accurate because the word says that the tents were to be set far off from the tabernacle, and there's some who say that far off means up to a mile away. 
There's one tribe that is located closer to it. That would be the tribe of Levi. And Levi is a buffer zone between the tabernacle and the other tribes. Now, the purpose of that was to reverence the holiness of God and to keep people away from being tempted to intrude where they shouldn't go. And so when the whole camp was organized and every tribe was in its place, the tabernacle then stood prominently in the center of the entire nation. In the center of the entire nation. And that was a picture, several pictures, in fact, of God's people. That's what we're going to talk about first here. What did that picture to Israel? Well, first we would note that it showed that God is prominently with his people. When, when the census of Israel was taken, there were over 600,000 men over the age of 20 that were able to go to war. Most people believe that indicates that there were at least 3 to 6 million Israelites, including the women and children, that were traveling across the wilderness, and they were setting up this camp in every place where Israel stopped. And each of these millions of people had one central focus... That God was leading them and that God is, at, is the center of their attention. Israel was a theocratic nation. This means that God directly ruled them. They were the chosen people of Jehovah God. And it was impossible to, to, to escape this daily influence that God is there as they walk across the desert and when they set up camp. So each mile of the journey as they walked, the Levites were transporting this entire structure. There's the setup time. There's the take-up time. Everything is concerned with what's going on with the tabernacle. And all of that reminded them of God. And so when they stepped out of their tents, they could see in the distance the smoke in the day of the fire from the tabernacle. They would see uh, uh, the, the fire at night rising from the tabernacle at the center of the camp. And I'm sure that time and distance and other places in the camp were all relative to where that tabernacle stood. When someone might come by and say, well, have you seen Joshua? Well, they would say, well, yes, he, he was here just a little while ago, but he's probably on the other side of the tabernacle by now. If someone were to ask, well, how far is it to a place to get water? They might say, well, it's about 30 minutes from the tabernacle. So that tabernacle is central and that everything relates to it. Where is this, this tabernacle when it's so prominently among the people? So that made God stand out in their minds. And it's true for us that although we don't live in a theocracy, that God demands that he be prominent. God demands and desires that he is to be the dominant focus of our lives. That every moment, every motive that we have considers God. Now, I don't know about you, but since I've been a Christian, every week is built around service to God. This is just what we do. This, this church, assembling here, being with God's people, this is what we do. We don't plan anything, go anywhere, unless we consider how does that impact our church? Uh, what is that going to do to our church and to our service to the Lord? Now, the church then is to make God prominent, God's Word is to be the prominent focus of our attention. Now, there are many churches that give very little attention to the Word. They hardly preach the Word any longer. Most of them don't really pay much attention to what God says about worship. And so they're not too much concerned about the instructions of the way that God wants things done. But God has given us a book. 
He's given us the Old and the New Testaments to show us how we are to operate, what we are to do, what the mission of the church should be. And we're not the ones that are prominent in all of this. God is the one who is prominent. God is always to be the center of our worship and everything that we do in the church. So we might say that what we are to do is to camp around God. We are to camp around God. And no one who comes into these services should miss God. There shouldn't be any mistake about what we're doing here. You can't miss God when you come here because this is all about our service to Him. Now, I think that we try to show that in our church. We try to show it with our high devotion to Scripture. This is why we so often read the Scriptures. I think we show it with the centrality of the pulpit where the pastor preaches the Word of God that he has for his people. It's seen in the prayers that go up as we call on God. It's seen in the singing as we exalt God through the praises of song. And so there's not much that's going to be said about us, except whenever we talk about us, we want to talk about we are what we are only because God made us what we are. It's always going to make, we're always to make God prominent. And then with the tabernacle in the center, it reminded them that God is permanently with his people. They didn't move the camp unless God is apart. Israelites just didn't get up and walk off and leave the tabernacle. No, God is always a part. God is permanently with his people. And that tabernacle always remained at the center of the marching formation as they, as they went across the wilderness. And they always knew God was with them. So that cloud in the day and the fire by night stood immediately over the tabernacle to show them that God was always there. And that's to teach us. The lesson learned is that in the brightest and the best of times... Or in the darkest and the bleakest of times, God is always there. David wrote of his presence, God's presence in the 23rd Psalm, when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget... Yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, and thy walls are continually before me. The author of Hebrews quoted the words of God, Hebrews 13, verse 5, For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And as we go on reading the Psalms, how could we forget David's praise to God as he spoke of God's eminence? He said, On the highest of the mountains or in the depths of the sea, God is always there. And so to view the tabernacle from the outside was to realize God is always there. God is there for the protection of his people. Martin Luther took his thought for his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that we sang this morning. He took it from the 46th Psalm, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear... Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. 
Now, isn't that marvelous what the psalm says? The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And so as surely as Israel knew that God was with them, you, Christian, can be sure that God is with you in every place, in every trial, in every weakness that we encounter, every sorrow, and in every triumph, God is there. He's our refuge, a present help in time of trouble. And then we would also note that the tabernacle at the center of the camp taught them that God is personally with his people. The children of Israel encamped around the tabernacle with equal representation on each side. Equal representation of the tribes. Three all around, three tribes on each side of the tabernacle. Three on each side said that God is equally available at any time. And the friends, that the wonderful news for you as a Christian, learning from this, is that Jesus is always available to you. That, that there isn't a person in the room who, who can't come to Jesus any time and feel that he is personally there for them. And so he invites you to come. And he excludes no one because of their race, not because of their ethnicity, not their nationality. And listen to this, not even their depth of depravity. And I mean, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how evil that you've been. It doesn't matter what your life has been like. All that we need to do is come to him as we are. And then he promises to cleanse us and to clean us up and to make us fit for service to him and fellowship with him. Well, as we go through the tabernacle, we repeatedly see how that coming to Christ involves only one thing, and that's the necessity of coming the way he says to come, to come in the approved way. And when we come to God that way, he's always available for our aid and comfort. So any visitor to the camp of Israel had to be immediately impressed by the centrality of Jehovah God's presence there in the location of the tabernacle. Well, we want to notice, secondly, this afternoon, that the tabernacle was surrounded by a fence. It was a linen fence. And what is a fence for? Well, a fence keeps people out. Seems very strange after what I've just said. I said God is available. He's a present help in time of trouble. Then what need is there of a fence? Well, say what we might about it. A fence is used to keep people out. I have one around my backyard. You probably do too. We like our space. We, we want to protect that space. And fences are built to keep people out of our space. And I would have to tell you that is also the purpose of the linen fence. It set up a boundary that said you're not supposed to cross into this space. Verse 9 says, And he made the court on the south side southward. The hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits. And verse 12, and for the west side were hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10, the hooks and the pillars and the fillets of silver. And thus the writer goes around the entire length of the fence describing the, the materials and dimensions of it. Now the next picture that we have then shows the linen fence. The court of the tabernacle was a rectangle made up of a white linen fence that's 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And this fence stood seven and a half feet tall and completely enclosed the tabernacle area. Well, why did God want a fence? And why, why did God want to keep people out? Now again, after all, the, the tabernacle spoke of the presence of God 
And we know that God wants communion with his people. He wants fellowship with us. So why build a fence? Well, the purpose of the fence was to keep man out. When you approach the tabernacle, you couldn't see inside the enclosure. All you can see is that fence. If you're at ground level, that's all you'll see is the fence. This seven and a half foot tall fence kept everyone from seeing inside and going inside. Well, again, we know the purpose for a fence. But what is the divine purpose for God's fence? Well, I want you to notice first that the fence bars the wrong approach. Now, there probably isn't a clearer type of Jesus in the Bible than this white linen fence. The Bible is very specific about white linen. White linen stands for righteousness. And in this case, it stands for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it is the righteousness of God that separates us forever from him. That God is holy and we're not. Now, that the way to God then is barred by God's perfection. And so when an Israelite came to the fence... The white linen prevented him from going inside to see the interior where there is communion with God. And whenever a person comes to God, no matter who you are, you must understand that God dwells in perfect holiness and righteousness, always in perfection. And you might remember the sermon I preached a few weeks ago that said that God is light and that light stands for perfection. And there's nothing that comes into God's presence unless it's perfect and holy. I think you're all very much aware what the scriptures say about us though. We are not perfect and holy. Romans 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become profitable. There is none that doeth good, no not one. And so the natural condition of man bars us from God. Righteousness is established by the law and it's abundantly evident that there is none of us that has ever kept God's law perfectly. In fact, the Bible even goes beyond that. Not just saying you're not perfect, but it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, if you could, and yet you offend in one point, he says you're guilty of all. So even if you were guilty of just one mistake in your entire life, you would be barred from the presence of God. Breaking the law in one point is equal to breaking it all in God's eyes because it does this. It proves that you're a sinner. It proves that you're not perfect. It proves that you have a sinful nature. But when we speak of one sin, you say, well, that's so bad. I mean, just one sin? Well, this is like a chain. And one sin is like a link in the chain. And if you break the one link, the whole thing falls. There is no connection any longer. So you break one link in the chain by sinning against God, then the relationship is broken and man falls. But we're very much aware that our condition is much worse than we've sinned one time. We all know that we're guilty of breaking all of the commands. We've committed hundreds and hundreds of offenses against God. And because we can't keep God's law, the law is never allowed to be a way to approach God. The law can never save anybody. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. I mean, the law by itself is really that good in one sense that if we could be saved by keeping the law, if a law could be given that would save you, God would have done it that way. God would have given us that law because the law is righteous and holy and good. 
But he says you have a problem in verse 22. The scripture has concluded all under sin. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So the Israelite could walk round and round the fence and he couldn't get in. Oh, he knew God is on the inside, but he's outside and he has no holiness. He has no righteousness with which to approach God. His righteousness is only his self-righteousness. That's never acceptable. So man is shut out by the fence. The fence represents a demand of perfect righteousness. And you've seen here as we read of the construction of it that the fence stood upright by brass pillars that represent the judgment of God. So try as he might, the law, the righteousness of God, the judgment that God promises to bring keeps him out. But then the fence did something else. It most definitely bars the wrong approach, but there's another purpose for us. The fence directs the right approach. The fence tells you there has to be a certain way that you come. Now, prominently then displayed in one end of the fence is a gate. So again, you can walk round and round the tabernacle enclosure and you would find no way in but the gate. And so it become immediately apparent to an Israelite, if he wants in that tabernacle space, in that area, he must walk through this gate. And so it is with any person today. If we are to come into the presence of God, the right approach is necessary. There is no climbing over the fence. There's no tunneling under it. Jesus said in John 10:1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door of the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now the person who tries to get in another way, a person who seeks to have a relationship with God another way, is described in a parable that Jesus gave about the marriage feast. Now, if you'll just turn your Bibles to Matthew 22, Jesus told the story of a, a king who invited many guests to a wedding feast for his son. But instead of preparing for the feast, they made fun of the invitation that was given. And they even killed the messenger that was sent to invite them. And so the king came and he destroyed those guests. And he had his servants look for other guests. And then when he arrived at the wedding feast, he discovered that there were some there who didn't have on the proper wedding garments. Now, let me, let me read the end of the parable in Matthew 22 at verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away. And cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called and few are chosen. Now the person without the right wedding garment is one who tried to come in some other way. He wasn't properly clothed. And so Jesus is teaching that anyone who seeks to come into the kingdom of God must be properly clothed. And the clothing that he must wear is the righteousness of Christ. John Bunyan, the old Puritan Baptist preacher and author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, This righteousness is not an attribute of God, nor the change character of the believer, but it is Jesus Christ who himself met every demand of the law for us, and by God's divine act called imputation, 
became righteousness for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The believer in Christ is now, by grace, shrouded under so complete and blessed a righteousness that the law from Sinai can neither find fault nor diminution therein. This is what is called the righteousness of God by faith. So there is only one way in. It is by the righteousness of Christ. And the linen fence represents this righteousness. So it will keep you out or it will let you in depending upon what you do with Christ. That brings us then to the third area of discussion. And this is the gate. The gate of the fence. A door or this gate lets people in. If you look at verse 18 of our text, and the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, and 20 cubits was the length, and the height and the breadth was five cubits answerable to the hangings of the court. Now, notice in our picture, we put it up again, there you have the door of many colors. So in one end of the fence, at the eastern end, There's a gate that's made to let people in. God didn't want to bar man without a way to come into his presence. But he made only one way. This gate is in the eastern end. It's 30 feet wide, seven and a half feet tall. And it's the only way an Israelite can go into the tabernacle area to view the courtyard. Now, I hope you are way ahead of me on this because all of us that are saved, we understand what this door represents. The tabernacle speaks of Jesus, and so this door must also speak of him. So let me, let me give you some aspects of this door that give us pictures of Jesus Christ. The first one is the exclusiveness of the opening. Now, I think I've made it clear this is the only way in. There is only one door. The entrance is only by this door. So what does that tell us? Jesus explained it himself in John 10, 7 through 9. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Jesus also said in unmistakable terms, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Peter said, Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said, 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you can try any method that you want, and there are many people who do, but you're never going to gain access to God without first coming through Jesus Christ. So you can forget about Mary, you can forget about the saints, and you can forget about angels, you can forget about your dear mother who's waiting for you on the other side. No, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll not see God unless you first see him. And in fact, to see him is to see God. The next we would notice, there is that exclusiveness of the opening, but there's also the inclusiveness of the opening. The fence has only one gate, but this is a gate that's open to all. Any Israelite that was welcome, if he wants to come in, he can walk through that gate. And the same is true of Christ. Anyone who desires fellowship with him, 
If you desire fellowship with God, you may come. The scripture says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God said through the prophet Isaiah, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now there we have a very clear invitation to the sinner. All he needs do is to come through the door and fellowship is attained. Now, that might raise questions in your mind. You know, say, well, pastor, I I know that you're always teaching us about the electing grace of God. Is it true that anyone who wants to come can come? And I would say, yes, that is true because everyone is invited to come. God desires that people should come. And even this, Christ commands you to come. This is what Paul said. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So he's telling us that anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. But sadly, with all there is to offer in salvation, there are not many that come. In fact, not many want to come. And in fact, there are none who want to come. And it's not for the lack of compassion of God. It's not because he doesn't have mercy. And the command that God issues for all to come in no way ensures that all will come. And so thus no one has an excuse to say, well, that election of God, that's what keeps me from being saved. No, God never said, come if you are the elect. He said, come. And friends, that's not for you to ascertain before you come. Do you want to come? That's the only thing you need to know at the moment. All you need to know is that you are included in the command to repent and believe. Now, thirdly, we see the view from the opening. I'm not going to preach on this part tonight. We'll get to it. But as soon as an Israelite looked inside the gate, there he would see in front of him the brazen altar, which is the place of sacrifice. And it's true that anyone who will be saved must see the sacrifice of Christ. Anyone who will be saved must first stop at Calvary. He must see a crucified Savior and see that blood that was shed for the redemption of our sins. Now that is an awful sight, an awful sight to think of the cross, but folks, it is a beautiful sight at the same time. And so inside the gate, inside the fence, there's this marvelous view of the comprehensive work of Christ in his life and his death for sinners. And then lastly, we speak of the sufficiency of the opening. There isn't another opening needed. This is the one that puts you in the place where you want to be. You go through this gate and there's all the proper order of all the articles. There's the piece, uh, the pieces of furniture. All the things that must be passed before you could get into the tabernacle proper. And everything must line up. Everything must be in the proper place before the tabernacle can be entered. You go through this door and it puts you there where you need to be. Now, you remember, though, in the Old Testament... Only the priest could enter the tabernacle structure itself. But that doesn't mean that the average Israelite was left out. Because that priest is his representative. Six million people can't go into this tabernacle. Now we'll we'll talk about the size of it a little bit later on. But six million people can't go into the tabernacle. But they all can go in through their representative. And that representative is the priest, and he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are sure of that, aren't you? Because of all those lessons that we had on the priesthood. 
So everybody can enter into the tabernacle through their representative. And that's what Christ is. We enter into our salvation, into our life with God by going through Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that we can go. Now the sufficiency of Christ to bring us in is seen in the coloring of the construction of the door. Now the text says in verse 18 again, And the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. You remember that? You remember those colors? All those weeks of studying the priestly garments. And here we see these four colors. Here they are again, always in the same order. Blue, purple, and scarlet. So we have four colors. Blue, purple, scarlet, and the white linen. And these all speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in the New Testament, we have four gospels. They all speak of different aspects of Christ, but they combined represent one truth. Purple speaks of royalty. Matthew then is the gospel of the king. Red speaks of servitude. And Mark presents Christ as the suffering servant. White speaks of purity. And Luke is the gospel of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Blue speaks of heaven. And John is the gospel of the divine son of God who was sent down from heaven. And so when you approach the white linen fence, the law says, stay out. Don't enter. You're not holy. You can't come in. But then when you found your way to the gate, the grace of God in Jesus Christ says, come in. Whosoever will come in because I will clothe you with my righteousness and I'll make you worthy to enter. Now imagine for just a moment living day after day with this imagery. Every day that goes by, this is your, the center of your world. The tabernacle and all the pictures of the tabernacle. How close does that make you to God? No wonder God is prominent in the camp. Now I said earlier this would be an easy sermon. So let me conclude by emphasizing the simplicity of salvation. Someone has said that being saved is as easy as ABC. A. Acknowledge your sin. Admit your guilt. Come to him without any claim of righteousness. You don't come trusting your good works. You don't come trusting your merits or your morality. You don't trust anything but Jesus Christ. That is, we come to be then. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, the Bible says, and thou shalt be saved. Faith alone saves. And then the Bible tells us that we must confess our sins. That's the sea. God says, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ... And believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. When I look at this, I, I can't think of anything as inspiring as the tabernacle. And when you look around our building, have you ever thought about how things in this building speak of Christ? The door by which you enter the sanctuary on your left can represent the way to God. The chair in which you sit can represent faith that holds you up. It sits on a white frame, the righteousness of Christ, which supports your faith. The blue seats in the backs tell you that someday you're going to heaven. The platform may represent Christ who is high and holy and lifted up. And the pulpit can represent, and it should, that God's word is central. And then we look over to the baptistry and we think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The preacher who stands before you represents the word of life, the only way that you can be saved. The red curtains that we have speak of the blood. 
And then the blue carpet speaks of the heavenly nature of Jesus Christ. But if you were to get down on your hands and knees and look very carefully at that carpet, you'll see there's some brown mixed in. There is an earthly, earthly, not only heavenly, but an earthly quality to Jesus Christ. Now, do you think we thought about all those things when we put these colors together? Probably not. But it's good that it works out that way. Then we think about the Sunday school classes that represent the knowledge of Jesus. The kitchen, that Jesus is the bread of life. The sound system that, that God speaks to us. The hymn books that God deserves our worship and praise. The lights, that Jesus is the light of the world. The windows that God sees into your heart. And then, of course, the cross. That's where Jesus died. So you go around the room and you see Jesus. You see him in all that we do. You know, our minds ought to be geared this way. So that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, even the creation itself, we see God and what God has done for us. And that would give you just a small sense. Walking into this building and looking at all these things gives you a small sense of what people saw in the tabernacle every single day of their lives as they walked through the wilderness and as Israel lived in the promised land. Well, I hope you learned something from this today. And I pray as we continue in our study that many of these things will be an eye-opening experience about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So here's a final question for you. Is King Jesus the center of your camp? Is he everything to you? His command is to be prominent. He's the Lord. He is permanently with you. He is personally with you. If you are a believer, you are a child of the King. And he's to be the center of your life. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for word pictures that we see in the Bible. Not only have you given us the words that we can read, but the mental visualizations that are intended to, to show us Jesus Christ and all the many, many things that he did in the salvation of our souls. Thank you, Lord, for your people that faithfully attend the hearing of the word of God. And we pray that our lives will be blessed as we apply your word to our lives every single day, making you prominent in everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.